to have two accusations that are leveled against God. Two accusations that we read. Because anyone got to guess what these accusations might be? Look at the first one, halfway through. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying God is unjust. These people from the 5th century BC, they're looking around them. They're looking at the pagans around them and they're saying they're flourishing. We, the people of God, are struggling economically. God is not fair. God is unjust. God is corrupt. Do you see it? There's your first accusation. But then, look at the second accusation. Look at the end of the verse. Because then they go further. And they say, where is God? And you, if you've been here for the sermon series, you know exactly. You know exactly what they're saying, don't you? They've rebuilt this temple. And they've expected the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud of God, to fill the temple. And it hasn't happened. And what do they say? God is not interested in us. God is absent. You hear it, don't you? God is unjust. God is absent. There is this contemporary flavor to this irreverence we see before God in Malachi 2 and Malachi chapter 3. So what do we want to know? We want to know how God is going to respond to these faithless people. That's what we want to know. So let's look at this. One or two things we have to see here. First point this morning, first heading. We see here that God promises his presence eh, to these people. God promises his presence. They cry out, where are you? And God says, I am coming. Now, to be honest with you, I love the kind of investigative detective work that we're all kind of forced to do at the outset of chapter 3 and we are in the first verse I'm sure you noticed this in the reading we're given three titles in the very first verse there's kind of three characters the spotlight falls on three titles and if we're going to you know, if we're going to understand anything about this portion of scripture, we've got to try and wrestle, we've got to try and get our detective hat on, and we're going to try and work out who these three characters are in verse 1. Who are these, these three titles? Who do they refer to? So let's do that, shall we? Let's work at this one by one, these three titles. Do you notice the first one? Look at it with me, please. Verse 1, chapter 3. What does God say? God says, you wonder where I am. I'm going to send my messenger to you, my messenger. Now, okay, who does, who, do, who's God speaking about there? Well, there's a few options on the table. First of all, God there could be promising his people that he is going to send the prophet Malachi back to them. Because how switched on are you this morning? Can you remember what I said right at the start of the sermon series? What does Malachi's name mean in Hebrew? Do you remember it? It means, yes, brilliant. Boy at the front got it. Love it. Martin got it. It means my messenger. So this could be God promising later on, I'm sending you Malachi now, I will send him back to you. Okay, it doesn't mean that. But that's what it could be. Second option on the table is that God here is promising to send an angelic being in power into Israel. Because again, what do we know, friends? We know that the word messenger in Hebrew is the same word as the word for 
angel, messenger and angel are the same word in Hebrew. So God here could be saying, I'm going to send, you're wondering where I am? I'm going to send an angel to you, okay? Now it could be these, it could be Malachi, it could be angel, but what do we all in this room know? (laughs) Come on, we just have to think back to the first reading. What do we know? This is a prophecy that is fulfilled in none other than John the Baptist. Who is in view? Who is this messenger? It is John, that great forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? So we kind of, we've done our detective work. We know, my messenger is John. But hang on, what is said about this messenger? Would you look at that? We are told that he will prepare the way before me. And again, I've got to say, I love this. I really do. I love this. In fact, what I want to do is speak to the boys and girls about it and take them along, see if they can follow this, because it's brilliant, it's wonderful. So you're going to listen, boys and girls, everyone, kids at the back, brilliant. In the ancient world, okay, there was a kind of custom that kings had to fulfill if they were going to visit a far-off part of their province and their land, okay? So they were going to have the state visit. It's miles away to a part of the land that they still rule, but they hadn't been in in a while. Do you know what they had to do? They had to send a messenger on ahead of them. Okay, the messenger would run on ahead of the king. We'd come into this far off bit of land, and what would he do? He would declare, he would declare, the king's going to come. The king is going to come soon. Now, this is the important bit. This is what I think is the interesting bit. Do you know what the people had to do at that point? They had to very literally prepare the way for the king. So they had to run out onto the dusty roads. And they had to prepare the road. They had to get the rocks, get the rocks off there, smooth it out, get any bushes, get any stones away. They also had to level out the land. Do you see it? They had to prepare the way for this royal procession that was going to come in. And I'm saying to you, friends, isn't that just, isn't that a beautiful picture when you relate it to the ministry of John the Baptist? Isn't it? Because what is it that John had to do in preparation for the arrival of his great incarnate king? Did he have to move some rocks, some bushes, level out land? No, he had to preach the doctrine of repentance. Isn't that such as the majesty of Jesus, such as his kingly splendor? What was the suitable preparation? He had to call people like you and people like me to full, frank confession of our sin before our Lord and our God. So we understand here, this messenger, John the Baptist. But let's move on. Come on, look at verse 1 again. Come on, we've got titles, we've got characters. Here's the second one. God says, once the messenger has come, I am coming. We hear that God is soon to arrive. Now look at the title for God here. We're told that the Lord, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. I know how this goes this morning. I do. I know there's a problem here. When we look at this, there's an Old Testament promise that the Lord is one day going to come. (laughs) And we know who it is. And so the tendency can be right now to switch off. Isn't that right? I mean, come on. Somebody is going to appear shortly after the ministry of John Baptist. And he's called the Lord. Who's that? I mean, we know who it is. Okay, so the tendency can be to switch off. And I am pleading with you, begging with you, not to switch off, because there is something just glorious here. So look at it. Look at verse 17, and notice the way that the Lord is written in verse 17. 
Now, do you see it? Even boys and girls, do, do you see it? It is written in small capitals. You notice that? Now, look at this title that we're actually focusing on in verse 1 of chapter 3. Is it the same? It is not the same, is it? Now, do, do you understand and do you see why that is? It's because that, in verse 1, that title for God, that name that is used in Hebrew there, it is not the usual, it is not the covenantal personal name of God that we're used to, Yahweh. In verse 1, that's not the title being used. In verse 1, the title is, can I say the more majestic name, Adonai. That's the name of God in, in, in verse 1. It's a, a name that speaks really of the, quite appropriately, I'm sure you would agree, the kingly splendor and, and, and magic. Adonai in verse 1. And maybe you look at me and say, so what? But don't you see how special it is? I mean, think about what is happening at this point in Malachi. God is promising to come to his people. God is promising to arrive. And at the same point, he is speaking of the one who is to come as being distinct from him. God is saying, I am coming. God coming. But at the same time, that one who is to come is distinct from him. Do you see, we have this beautifully Trinitarian portion of Old Testament scripture before you. You understand that? It's very similar to the psalm, the song you have just sung. The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to Adonai, do you see what you have in your hands here? What a promise. God the Father promising to send into his, into this world, to his people, God the Son. So we have a messenger and we have the Lord, but then... We get to the third title. Would you look at it? We have God speaking of sending the messenger of the covenant. I wonder if anyone in here likes poetry. Uh, I, uh, I'm not the greatest fan of poetry ever in the world. I have to say though that I am beginning, slowly but surely, the more I study the Bible, to appreciate Hebrew poetry. And tell you one reason for that there is this feature really important feature of hebrew and hebrew poetry and even prose like this and it's called parallelism and we've talked about this before as a church but for the visitors i'm sure you can realize what parallelism is in hebrew poetry it's when a writer speaks of something but uses repetition or uses parallel ideas to make up point to make a specific point now i wonder if you'd hold that in your thoughts parallelism and let's see if that helps us to identify who this messenger of the covenant is because what's the mistake that we're probably making just now who do you think the messenger of the covenant is i'll be honest with you first time i read it i thought it was john didn't you i mean you can see the logic there we've just been told a messenger is coming haven't we? And now we're told another messenger is coming and we're thinking, well, it must be the same person and it's not. So you listen to this. See if you hear, see if you hear the Hebrew parallelism. What does God say? He says, and the Lord whom you seek, then he goes on to say, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Do you hear the repetition of ideas? Do you hear the parallelism? I'll say it again. And the Lord whom you seek, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Do you, do you see what that tells you? Like who's the messenger of the covenant? Is it John the Baptist? It's not. It is another clear reference to the coming of the Christ. Who's this messenger of the covenant? It is, it is Adonai. It is the Lord. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that is a glorious thing. Because you see what God is doing in Malachi chapter 3. To people who do not deserve it. To a people who are wearying him. To a people who, who, who seem almost to hate God, despise God, a faithless people. What does he do here? He provides them a prophecy of salvation. Like he's saying here, I am coming. When that road is clear, when that preparation is done, I, God, am coming to you and I am going to become the mediator of the covenant of grace. God promising that though we can't do nothing about it, He's going to act. God is going to act. And He is going to provide salvation. He is going to enable a covenantal relationship, a personal saving relationship between a holy God and sinners like you and me, between God Almighty and His church. And isn't that a prophecy that you hold dear? Isn't that a prophecy that London City Presbyterian Church, we must delight in? Why? What do you know about Malachi chapter 3? You know the work is done. You know this prophecy has been, it's been fulfilled. Adonai has come, friend. The messenger of the covenant, he has come. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we see God promise his presence. I suppose that it raises a question for us, doesn't it? Um, with Malachi chapter 3. God here, these people are faithless, they're accusing God of being disinterested and unjust. God promises that he's going to appear. What's the question? The question surely is, well, what exactly, oh God, are you going to do when you appear and arrive? So second, I want us to consider the fact that God promises here a process. A process. I think we all know, don't we, that throughout God's word, throughout scripture, uh, God's favoured method, one of his favoured methods of describing himself, is to use metaphors and illustrative language. Isn't that right? From beginning of scripture all the way through Old Testament, New Testament, God uses pictures and images to describe who he is, but also to describe the work that he does. Isn't that right? Now, we could throw out some examples. Let's go for a shepherd. That teaches us about who God is and about his nature. Doesn't it also teach us things about what he's like and the work that he does? God as shepherd or vineyard owner, and we could go on. Now, I'm sure, and I hope in a way, that you notice that before you in Malachi chapter 3, you are given by God... A couple of precious metaphors that speak of who he is and, and, and what he does. And I just want to actually just draw your attention. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to draw your attention just to one of those. So let's, there's two, but let's focus on one. Look at the end of verse two, please. So you've got one. I'm going to come back to. We're just going to pop it on a shelf. Because God says that he is going to be like, isn't it strange? Fuller's Soap. 
You agree with me? That's rather an odd one. We have a scratch and right. God's fuller's soap. We'll come back to that. Keep reading and you'll see the one that we need to focus on. Look at in verse 3. He also says that the coming Christ, the Adonai, when he comes into the world, he will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. Again, it's quite strange, isn't it? God as refiner or purifier of silver. So what does it mean? Well, uh, this is how we'll play it again. I'm desperate to take the boys and girls with me, so I'll speak to the boys and girls about it. Please listen on. So I want I, I want a show of hands from the boys and girls. Okay, how many of you have heard of a silversmith before? Any of the boys and girls heard of a silversmith? Got Martin's heard of it. So one. Oh, that was a delayed reaction from the bank. Suddenly all the hands go up. That's brilliant. A silversmith is a wonderful job. A silversmith is where a man or a woman, they make things, objects, jewellery out of, guess what? Silver. Yes, brilliant. Now I want to tell you how they do it very, very briefly. And it's great, but it's a pretty dangerous job by the sounds of it, okay? So you're ready for it? You've got to imagine I'm a silversmith. So what a silversmith does is he takes a bit of silver, and you don't think of silver like you know it. This is disgusting, and it's dirty, and it's black, really. And what the silversmith does is he pops it on this big spoon thing, and he puts it into the fire. What do you think will happen? It melts. Melts. So you have liquid silver now on the spoon. But here's the thing. What happens when it melts is that the silver gives off oxygen. It gives off gas. <gasps> so the silversmith has to work fast. What he has to do is at this point he has to treat. It's in the fire, but he has to treat the silver with other substances and with charcoal. Do you know why? Because he doesn't want the oxygen and the gas to come back into the silver and make it black and horrible again. You see? So... The silversmith has to do this once. And then he has to do it again. He has to melt it down. Treat it. Melt it down. Treat it. Melt it. And here's the thing. When he's finished, do you know what his test is? You ready for the silversmith's test? He has to be able to look at the silver. There's going to be left such a pure metal that he is able to see his reflection in the metal. Are you with me? Are you listening? Friends, did you notice... What God says about himself as refiner here. Here's a few things. Look at verse 3. We are told that he will sit to refine. You see the idea that when God refines, there is attention to detail from the Lord. Carry on. Same verse. Notice also who he is going to purify and refine. Do you notice who it is? It's the Levites. It is the priest. The last one. Look at the end of, look at verse 4. Look at the end goal. That through this purifying and this refining process, the people of God are going to be made to worship God, to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, is everyone on the same page with me? It's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? Here is God, the creator, and he's, he's a silversmith. Isn't it wonderful? It's, it's beautiful, such an image. But we ask, but what does it mean? Well, friends, if we melt all of this down, I think it boils down to one solitary word. 
that important theological term, what you have before you in Malachi chapter 3, is the sanctification of the people of God. This process, this purification here, this is your Christian experience, your life from the point of your justification to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ, He returns. But I ask you this, and it's not easy, but I ask you, how is it in Scripture God time and time and time again tells you, promises you, that He will purify you and refine you? What's the answer? It is through the fires of suffering. It is purification through trials. And so I need to say this to you, if you are born again in Christ this morning, if you are going through the most awful furnace, if you're going through a terrible time of pain, of a season of suffering, understand that is not an indication that God is unjust. That is an indication that the Lord God of heaven and earth is refining your life. I don't think of it. Don't think of that suffering as a, a sign of absence. It is a sign of God's attention. Do you see that? Isn't it actually a beautiful thing through our suffering? What do we see? Christ is seated. Christ is seated in your life. He is giving you divine attention. He is working in you. And why? Isn't the end goal beautiful? Why is it like that? Also that one day, the great Adonai can see his own reflection in you. Is it all that one day you will be made perfect in the image of Christ? Why does this happen? All that one day we, the priests, yes? The Levites, the priesthood of all believers. One day we will be enabled to, to worship eternally and offer sacrifices pleasing to God. I mean, isn't there encouragement in this in Malachi chapter 3 for us as a church, as a community? It's suffering. It seems to tear us apart. Ah, but wait and pause. What does it show you? It shows you a divine silversmith. And he is at work in your life today. So we see that God promises his appearance. We also see that he promises to sanctify some. But as we close, we must notice that God also promises great punishment. Great punishment. Did, did you notice that there's this shift, I think, in attention and, and, and focus right at the end of this portion of Scripture? I, I'm sure that you would agree with me that thus far, very much the focus is first coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hasn't it? Don't you agree with that? If we have John the Baptist in focus and we have the work of the Lord Jesus and, and we have then the subsequent work of the Holy Spirit. Haven't we been thinking about Christ's first coming and the implications for us? But then right at the end there is this shift, I think. And uh, though we mustn't divide these things too much, we now turn to the second coming and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ on that last day. Now, what is said of this? Well, maybe you noticed in verse 5. We're promised that on Christ's return, God's going to do two things. There's a double work in the courtroom. On that final day, God is going to act as an expert witness. But also, notice the word, there will be judgment. God will, on the last day, act as 
judge. And we ask, of course, of the text, who's he going to judge? Well, surely you noticed. Didn't you in verse 5? This long, long list of sinners to face the, the wrath of God. We have adulterers, liars, oppressors, and so forth. Now, allow me to do this. Allow me to speak to you in here this morning. The people who have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins. We were we had a meeting during the week, a prayer meeting on Thursday night. And just in passing on Thursday night, we were talking as a church um, just about how enthused we are and excited we are about the fact that God has blessed us by taking to this congregation a number of people who have are interested in Jesus, but who have not bowed to Christ Jesus. The people in here just now who are maybe interested in the gospel, but who are yet to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. It's you I would speak to, and I would ask you this question. See, in this day that the Bible repeatedly says is coming, this day when Christ shall return, who, who do you say, who do you think will face the condemnation and the punishment of God? Like that day is coming. God makes it abundantly clear. He is the creator. It is up to him. He is the, he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. God is coming. Who do you say will face the anger of God? Like are you kind of buying into the way that the media and the, our city and our culture would portray this? Are you really, are you saying that, well, on that last day, I accept that some people are good and some people are bad, and some people go to heaven, some people go to hell, and those people who are going to go to hell, well, they are like the obviously wicked people. Murderers, rapists, terrorists. They go to hell, but everyone else, like we're all, I'm good, you're good, we're all good, people I work with, my family, everyone inherently kind of, is that... Is that what you would say? I want you to notice the common denominator in verse 5. Look at the very end of the verse. Who is it that faces the judgment of God on the last day when Christ returns? It is all those who do not fear this great majestic Adonai. Now listen and get it. Who is set to face the wrath of God? All of those who are outside a reverential, personal, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through contrition, repentance, and faith. And I'm urging you not to make the mistake of the people in Malachi chapter 3. Can you see what their mistake was? They thought they were safe. And guess what God's doing here? He's exposing that they're going to face judgment. And they thought, we're not going to face judgment. Why did they not think that? Why did they, why did they think they were safe and good? Why? Because they were associated with a worshipping community. They thought, well, we're safe, we're fine, we're good, we're, we're, we're at the temple. I mean, we're, we're going through the motions. We're, we're fine, we're safe. And what does God say? He says, no, see your heart. 
Like, see, this please me. See, you're rotten to the core. See that you are set to face the condemnation and wrath of God. I would say, please don't make that mistake. Understand, friend, this morning that the sands in the hourglass is just running out. Time taking on, running away from you. And understand that God is coming back and turn to him. And I, I, I have to end like this. I have to. But say, well, why Jesus? Don't you? You say, like, why do I have to turn to Jesus? What can Jesus do to make me safe? How can he... Pro- yeah? Well, what was, the, what was the weird phrase? Like, what was that phrase I said that we come back to? Do you remember what it was? What is God? What, who is Christ? He's a fool or soap? Detergent? Oh, yes, we see it, don't we? What is it that Christ has done? Why had Adonai come into this earth? He had come and come to cleanse. And as a church, we know exactly how he's done it. Because that's why we're coming to the table in a moment. What had Christ done? We are cleansed by the spilt blood of the Lamb. Isn't that it? That the mystery of the gospel and the mystery of the news is not some vague idea of redemptive love that we must love each other and everything is rosy. That's not the mystery of the gospel. It's not. The mystery of the gospel is that the great king, the majestic king, Adonai, the messenger of the covenant, he came and came to die and to bear his people's sin. That is the good news. If you are a Christian this morning who's struggling and struggling with doubt, doubt in God's justice, doubt in God's presence, look again this morning to Calvary. What do you see? You see at Calvary, Adonai. You see at Calvary, the messenger of the covenant. And what was he doing there? He was dying and dying to wash your sins away. Let's pray. Gracious God, eternal, uh, we do thank you and we worship you for this book of Malachi. We see our own sin, we see our wretchedness, uh, we see our coldness uh, in these people and their uh, habits of worship, but their heart not being true before you. We thank you that you have sent into the world uh, one who has done what we cannot do. And we do thank you for the sending of your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is fuller soap cleansing us and that you even today are refining and purifying your people. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.